welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back, finding the show if you're a first-time listener, continuing to support the show, or if you're a returning listener, if you're a subscriber to Counterpunch. Counterpunch really does depend on you guys, and I throw this uh, little message out in the beginning of every episode because I just want to remind people that the times that we're living in really do demand the kind of independent and fearless voices that Counterpunch really brings to you, and uh, providing a platform to those voices, oftentimes when they all don't necessarily agree with each other. I find a tremendous value in that. I've been a fan of Counterpunch for years and years now. Really, my entire uh, mature political life, I've been reading Counterpunch, and I'm glad and fortunate enough to be able to participate uh, in the project these days. So if you agree with me that Counterpunch is important and that kind of independence is valued, then please do consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. You can uh, get that magazine in the mailbox. It's a great way to follow all kinds of stuff that you're not even going to find on the website for Counterpunch. But if you don't want to do that, you can just make a donation through PayPal or via phone, pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch office, do whatever it takes, but keep Counterpunch going, keep it printing on paper, yada, yada, yada. Okay, let me turn to my guest today, somebody who's also a a huge contributor to Counterpunch, somebody whose work, well, I found through Counterpunch and whose work I consider to be must-read every single time I see it. Robert Hunziker is back on the show. He's been with us a few times. He is something of our resident expert on the enormity of the cataclysm of climate change. Uh, Robert is regularly publishing in Counterpunch as well as numerous other websites. Um, His most recent column uh, from last week, which I highly recommend, titled Pounding Heat Clobbers Greenland, really eye-opening. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his newest piece as well as some of the other things he's been working on. Robert, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Hi, Eric. Thanks. Great to talk to you again. Great to have you back, and thank you again for all of these important contributions that you make to the discourse about climate change, particularly on the left. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, August 6, 2019, really important story that you published, um, Pounding Heat Clobbers Greenland. But before we can get into the content, the substance of all of that, I know you wanted to make an important statement about uh, a really interesting and, and giant figure in the field that you follow. So Tell us a little bit about what we've been celebrating and what we need to know. Well, okay. Uh, and that giant is the giant of science. It's James Lovelock, the founder of the Gaia Theory. Uh, I did write an article about him a month or so ago. The title of it was At 100, Gaia Faces Its Biggest Challenges. And uh, James Lovelock just turned 100 years old, July 26th. Uh, he is a giant in the field. Uh, the Gaia theory is widely recognized by scientists around the world. Uh, and really that theory is that the Earth is a single self-regulating organism, and that includes your atmosphere, the oceans, rocks, soil, all the living things. These all constitute a self-regulating system that actually maintains our favorable conditions for life. I like to listen when he talks because he doesn't have an ax to grind. Listen, he started in 1960 with NASA. They hired him to find life on Mars, which he didn't find, but he discovered Gaia. And um, when he talks, I listen because he doesn't have an ax to grind. He's an independent scientist, one of the most highly respected in the world, very active today. And um, recently, uh, he was interviewed. And what he, one of the things he said is, I hope, going to be the message that's going to come through in what we talk about today, Eric. And here's what he said. 
He said the earth is in dire trouble and could soon experience intense climate-related disasters. And boy, is that ever true. He also said when tough times come, it'll be very rapid indeed. That's a man who has 100 years of history under his belt. And we want to pay attention because he's not a compromised scientist like most. Most scientists are compromised because of their job security, because they get funding from a governmental source, or because they work for a university that's sponsored by corporations. He's not. He tells it like it is. And we have serious, deep problems with several ecosystems in the biosphere. And by the way, the biosphere is everything from the bottom of the ocean to the troposphere. All the way, everything that's involved in that is our big old biosphere. And you have a lot of ecosystems within it. The Amazon, for example, is an ecosystem. We have ecosystems collapsing all across the planet. But you know what, Eric? They're collapsing where people don't live. That's how the damage from global warming always starts, on the fringe of society, on the fringe of continents, and we're seeing huge damage. How fast will it happen? We're going to talk about that. How high will, sea uh, will the seas rise? We're going to talk about that. But first, let's discuss this article, Pounding Heat Clobbers Greenland. This has just, just happened. Greenland is huge. Robert, let me let me just before we jump into Greenland, I, it's an interesting point that you bring up. So in a, in essence, what you're saying is that things that happen on the geographical fringes, in, in essence, become like things happening on the fringes of our consciousness. In other words, the further away, the further removed it is from us geographically, the further it is removed from our consciousness. Beautifully put. Uh, you're a poet. Uh, I like that, by the way, and that's very true. I mean, who lives in Patagonia? <laughs> you know, where the ice is melting like, you know, ice cream cones in the summertime, right? Who lives in the Arctic, Antarctica, uh, the uh, glaciers up in the Tibetan mountains? Nobody does. That's where this stuff is riveting. It's pounding. It's happening. It's hitting hard. Now, uh, regarding this article uh, about the speaking of pounding, pounding heat clobber in Greenland, um, Greenland is 1,600 miles north-south. It's a thousand miles east-west, and it's covered by two-mile-thick ice, a lot of ice. There are two major ice reservoirs in the world that we have to watch out for, Greenland, Antarctica. Now, parts of Greenland melt every summer as the planet kind of tips to the north, and year over year, about 10% of the surface hits a melting point. This June, however, with the heat wave, the heat dome that hit, that moved from the Sahara to Europe, and we heard all about that, stopped over Greenland on the way because our jet streams are all goofed up because we lost the ice in the Arctic. That's messing up the whole northern hemisphere weather patterns. At any rate, it stopped over um, Greenland for a long period of time, and 45% of the ice melting points got hit with temperatures that were 10 C centigrade, 15 well, 8, 20 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit, over above normal. A second heat wave has also hit. Now here's what happens, just to give you an example. On the hottest days, you'll get as much runoff as could fill three million Olympic swimming pools. And how big is that? Well, if you put them end to end from California to Maine, you go back and forth 17 times. That's a hell of a lot of water. It's about seven billion gallons worth. Now, not only that, but 
there's been a huge glacial breakoff. You have about 12 major glacial systems surrounding Greenland. One of those is called the Helheim Glacier. And according to the Union of um, um, uh, the um, according to the Union of Concerned Scientists, that glacier from 1950 to 2000 was solid as the rock of Gibraltar. It was stable. Well, post the year 2000, what's happened is you've lost five miles of ice, and then you got an iceberg that's four miles wide that broke off this summer. It's now floating in the southeast waters off of Greenland, melting. Um, <laughs> so what's happening to Greenland, if you talk to the scientists who follow this for a living, here's what they'll tell you. The volume and the intensity that's happening on Greenland right now is on par with what their scientific models predicted would happen in the year 2050. In other words, Global warming's 40 years ahead of schedule based upon what's happening in Greenland. We don't want to hear that, do we? That's bad news. Uh, now, that is a nice segue into... Well, let me ask you, I'm sorry, Robert, before we, before we segue, help us to understand what you mean when you say an ice reservoir, why that's so important, and how that's different from some of the other trouble, uh, trouble spots we might see around the globe. Well, I mean, if, if Greenland melted off 100%, you'd raise seas, sea levels by 23 feet. Uh, Antarctica is the mother of all ice, and that's about 190 feet worth of sea level rise. Then you have another three feet of sea level rise from glaciers in mountainous regions around the world. Those are the three, three ice zones that can raise sea levels. And um, I think that uh, uh, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding and apprehension and angst about sea level rise. I don't think people really understand it very well. And one of the reasons is how many sea level rise experts do you find in life? Do you ever sit down on an airplane next to a sea level rise expert? Or do you ever meet one in your everyday life? I doubt it. Have you ever met one? Only you. Only you, Robert. <laughs> well, the reason I bring that up is, as you and I had discussed before this call, I do have a a new article is coming out in Counterpunch this week, and the title of the article is Sea Level Rise. And the reason I wrote the article is uh, John Englander delivered a speech at the Royal Institution in London recently. He's an oceanographer, and he's also considered the number one worldwide sea level rise expert. So we've got uh, a wonderful opportunity here to find out what's really going to happen. Uh, are the seas going to rise? Are the oceans going to rise a half a foot, two feet, three, five feet, 10 feet, 20 feet? And how soon will that happen? And he's given us some real good markers to work with. He gave his speech, interestingly enough, at the Royal Institution London, which is considered the home of science. Uh, this for 220 years, this has been the platform to people, for people scientists to introduce new theories. For example, in 1859, John Tyndall, the British scientist in 1859, uh, spoke in the same spot that John England, Englander spoke the other day, when he theorized about the dangers of the impact of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and how those molecules that absorb radiation could cause uh, greenhouse, the greenhouse effect. That was 160 years ago, Eric, that we knew about this. So what did John Englander do? He started his speech 
by first giving us something to, 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 that we can use as a marker. And that marker is the last 400,000 years because there's some really interesting characteristics about the f last 400,000 years. Precisely this, there have been four glacial, interglacial periods, or ice ages, if you will, over the last 400,000 years, and each one uniquely lasted 100,000 years. Now, in each cycle, you had 80,000 years were cold, 20,000 warm. If you take an average of that 400,000 years, the average temperature range was 5C or 5 centigrade. Maybe you remember, uh, or you all have heard, the IPCC has talked about the Inter Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and said, boy, we don't want uh, global warming to go over 2C, 2 centigrade, or all hell's going to break loose with our ecosystems, and preferably 1.5C, right? Okay, the temperature range during the 400,000 years was 5C, from coldest to warmest. The average... CO2 in the atmosphere or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 180 to 280 parts per million. Today, we have smashed through all the records for 400,000 years, we're at 410. And the average sea level cycles for all four cycles, every cycle hit 5C in temperature, and that brought on 120 meters or 393 feet of sea level change, either up or down. So if you do the math, historically for 400,000 years, every one C, one centigrade change, brings on 20 meters or 65 feet of sea level rise. Well, guess what? We've done what already post-industrial in only 200 years? We're there, we're knocking on the door right now. So doesn't the question then become, have we locked in 20 meters or 65 feet of sea level rise? And what's the timing of that? Is it years? Is it decades? Is it centuries? Well, let me just say this. We're just finishing that 20,000 year warm period. We should be in a cold period right now, by the way. That's where we should be right now. We should be in the cold, the 80,000 year cold cycle. We're 2,000 years overdue, but guess what? As John Englander said, Humans are a heat machine. We have aborted the cold cycle and we've changed the chemistry and the physics of our planet. We will not have another cold cycle. Now, well, and, and, and the interesting thing about that, and I, I, was, I actually had to think about it a little bit when I was reading your piece, that it's not only that we're, uh, you know, artificially, you know, manipulating, although maybe that's not the right word, but impacting this natural cycle of the earth. But the problem is that it's not that you're simply extending the warm period of this cycle. It's that you're creating the conditions for unpredictable effects of that ex extended warm cycle. So it's not just the warmth itself. It's all of the things that we can't even predict, all of the feedback loops, all of the things that become exponentially more intense every year that goes on every day decade that goes on a lot of these impacts that we just don't know it's that it's that really uh elusive we don't know what we don't know yeah exactly right and you know what's really significant eric um is that the one of the reasons that throws everybody off all humanity throughout all history of humanity is that the sea level has been stable for the past five thousand years 
And that's the human writing period. That's when we've communicated in, with the humanity has. Um, as a matter of fact, the last hundred years, even though we're up at knocking on the door of 1C post-industrial, sea level's only risen about four to five to six inches so far. No big deal. But that's having impact on the fringes of continents, which I'll talk about before we finish here. But meanwhile, things are about to change, big time. We're going to make history as humans. And here's what's happening. We're at the early stage now, and this is what Engel, Engellander, the heart of his, his speech he made uh, to the Institute. We're at the early stage of exponential growth with sea level rise. And here's how we know that. They've taken, they've had very um, precise satellite data since 1993 of the sea level rise. And here's what's happened. 1993 to 1998, seas rose 1.5 millimeters, 1.5. 1998 to 2011, 3.2. 2011, 2018, 5.0. Now, 1.5, 3.2, 5.0, you almost are doubling every decade cycle. That's called exponential growth because you're doubling every decade. And exponential is enormously powerful. In fact, there's a saying by a famous... A nuclear physicist out of Harvard named Albert Bartlett. And he said the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential functions. So let me just throw out an example of one right now. I'll ask you the question, Eric. How long does it take to fill Yankee Stadium with water if you first add one drop, and a minute later you double that and add two drops, and a minute later you double that and add four drops, and a minute later eight drops, then 16, then 32, every minute you're doubling it, how long does it take to fill Yankee Stadium with water? Uh, I, I know because I read the piece, but tell us anyway. 47 minutes. Isn't that incredible? What I mean, that really puts into perspective the power of exponential growth. Absolutely. It's unbelievably powerful and fast. Well, guess what? Sea level rise, according to Mr. John Englander, who is the world-renowned expert on sea level rise, he said he's discovered that we're it's in an exponential function now. So, um, wow. Then let's look at what projections are, if that's the case. Where can this thing go? Okay. We know what the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has said. What they've published is that by 2100, they think the consensus opinion is that sea levels will rise by 1.6 feet. And they also have another little backup clause in there that says, well, geez, if things really get goofy, and the worst, worst case could be 32 inches by 2100. Now, if you look at their footnotes in their data, you'll find out that they omit any and all reference to Antarctica. Uh, and the reason they do that is they claim they didn't have enough data on Antarctica to make projections. Well, that's the mother of all ice and the mother of all sea level rise, by the way. But they left it out. So, well, and, and isn't this another example of them leaving it out because they're afraid that if it sounds too alarmist, too crazy, too extreme, that somehow it'll be discounted, they'll be discredited, they'll be, you know, people will look askance at them or some nonsense. I mean, this is one of the uh, one of the overriding features of climate science that is really disturbing and, and, and really, I think, undermines a lot of the validity of a lot of the work. When you talk to um, scientists who are at the top of the field, like a James Hansen or a Ken Anderson out of Tyndale um, or 
or James Hansen and, 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 and several others, they'll tell you that the uh, IPCC is a bunch of sh bullshit. Uh, pardon the French. But what happens with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is that scientists submit all these articles and then they get accumulated and put together, blah, blah, blah. They have all these committees that do it. And then they take their final work and they hand it off to guess who? They hand it off to the uh, bureaucrats and politicians who finish the product. These are political documents. Ignore whatever the IPCC does, says and you'll be better off in life. Let's talk about what's really going to happen though with sea level rise. Because we have a, we have a map that uh, Engellander talked about over the last 400,000 years. Um, 400 year, uh, back during that 400,000 year period, sea levels rose 65 feet. Now if that happens, by the way, 65 feet, I'd be wearing a, a scuba gear right now. But over that period of time, sea levels rose 65 feet in 400 years. Now if you do the math, that's one and a half feet per decade. Right. So if we want to take that and extrapolate that to our mid-century, what would you get? You got another three decades coming, right? Is that four and a half, five feet by 2050? We're toast. This, the, the, every toast, every coastal city in the world is toast if that happens. OK, that's the math on it. And that's what's happened in reality during that 400,000 year cycle. And Robert, aren't we beginning to see some of that already? I mean, in places like Miami and some of the other cities where you see uh, places where, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it might flood at once a decade, but now it floods, you know, three, four or five times a season. Well, let me just say this, that the people listening to this show, they should uh, Google the following. Miami Beach is raising streets by two feet to combat rising seas, and they'll see pictures of, sea, of, of, of the streets in Miami Beach being raised two feet because of rising seas. They can see it for themselves. Now, let's continue on, though, with our uh, uh, Englander speech and what we get out of that. And uh, what we've got right now that's different than the last 400,000 years, of course, is we have the, the human turbocharger on the climate system. That's what's really changed things. And so in the old days, Remember I said the top of the uh, uh, amount of carbon in the system was 280 parts per million, right? And the low was 180. Yep. So during that 400,000-year cycle and those four different cycles, what happened is CO2 per year per annum grew at a rate of 0.1 to 0.3 ppm per year. That brought about what? That brought about slow temperature increases and ever slow sea life rise increases but still you got 65 feet in 400 years or one and a half feet every 10 decades today we're not at 410 280 anymore we're at 410 parts per million we've shattered every record for the last 400,000 years and not only that we're increasing per annum co2 into the atmosphere right now at 3.0 that's 10 times the high point during that 400,000 year cycle. So this is a lot like, and I, I use this expression in my article, it's like an Indy race car, what's happening right now with this, this um, 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 climate change. It's like an Indy race car on a geological track that's powering ahead and it's leaving the sea, sea level rise in its fumes, 
in, in the dust, but it will catch up in time because here's what happens. The biosphere, you can compare it to your conventional oven in your home. When you turn your oven up to 450 degrees, you can put your hand in, it's not 450 degrees. In fact, you could probably wait five or 10 minutes, it's not 450 degrees. Usually people have to wait 15, 20, 30 minutes, right? The biosphere is receiving all of these emissions of these greenhouse gases like crazy that block the heat in, and it's like your oven, the only difference is instead of minutes, it's minutes are years and decades. So today's heat is from the exhaust in your car from 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's the lag time we've got. And that's one of the tricky things about this whole sea level rise. We don't know how quickly it's going to fall into gear, but we do know, we do know now that it started reacting at an exponential rate. And if that's the case, I think we're in really deep trouble. Bottom line is Englander said he thinks that sea level rise well, A, he said it can't be stopped. There's no way, even if you shut down all fossil fuels tomorrow, it's, it's baked into the cake already. Secondly, we just don't know how much and how fast, but we do know it could be 65 feet, don't we, based upon everything we've talked about, maybe more. The other thing is he thinks it'll be one, two or three feet by 2050. So that knocks out of the box everything the IPCC has ever said. Now, there was a probably the most major undertaking about climate change ever done in 2008 by the Stern Report, which was commissioned by the British government. I'd like to talk about it in a minute because it's relevant today. And that report somehow has got, gotten pushed into the background and no one references it any longer, but it was, it was composed by the major minds of the time. And it's a seminal document, it's 700 pages, and what they did is the British government hired all of these scientists and economists and so forth, and they said, let's assume that business as usual from 2008 on, that we don't change anything in terms of fighting climate change. And here's what they came up with. They said that sea level rise, and remember, this is 2008, assuming business as usual, and I want to tell you right now, business as usual didn't work out. It's much worse than business as usual in 2008. In 2008, we had 385 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere, and it was growing per year at a rate of a little over two. Today, we're at 410, and we're growing at three, 35% higher. So business as usual is out the window already, but let's go ahead and look at what they said. One, they said sea level rise will be 15 to 20 feet in a few decades. Secondly, uh, they said that Florida, New York City, London, and Tokyo would be underwater. Third, they said there'd be a billion people displaced, sick, or dead. Fourth, they said there'd be massive water and food shortages. And finally, they said there'd be food and water wars throughout the planet. Now, that's essentially a dystopian existence that they're talking about, kind of like the Mad Max film. But let's look at something else that they talked about back then that people don't even talk about today. And this was pretty brilliant. They said, what is the really the current level of CO2 equivalence in the atmosphere? Because we all hear about CO2, carbon dioxide. Well, that's 85% of the greenhouse gases. The other 15%, you got to include those too. But for, for, for just uh, discussion purposes, people always just use CO2. If you do CO2 equivalents, you also include methane and you include nitrous oxide. Well, back in 2008, that number was 430 parts per million. 
And they stated in their paper in the Stern Report in 2008 that anything above 550 CO2 equivalents would risk everything and it'd be extremely harmful and you would have collapsing ecosystems. Where, where do you think we are today? CO2 equivalents? We're, right, we're right around there. 560. Okay. And they also said, I thought this was an interesting statement in the Stern Report, that climate change is the greatest in widest ranging market failure ever seen. So I'm here to tell you we already have collapsing ecosystems. They were dead right. It's happening right now. And um, I have some turbocharged climate bullet points I'd like to share with you when you want to do that. Just a few of them. There are whole yeah, bunch. Let's, let's, let's jump into that on the other side of the break. We're just about uh, ready to take a quick break here. Um, I want to talk about some of the climate change bullet points, some of this key information. And uh, I, I also want to talk a little bit about how we should um, how we should be thinking about climate change and how we should be thinking about it now versus maybe how we should have been thinking about it five years ago and maybe how we might want to be thinking about it five years from now. That and a whole lot more with Robert Hunziker. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. here on 
on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Robert Hunziker. Um, we've been spending a lot of time talking about his recent piece on Greenland that was published in Counterpunch. Again, uh, that was August 6th, Pounding Heat Clobbers Greenland, but we're also talking about sea level rise and a whole lot more. And Robert, before we jump to the break, you wanted to hit us with a few uh, key bullet points to think about sea level rise and climate change generally. So why don't you uh, lay some of those out for us? Okay, because uh, what I call these is turbocharged climate bullet points. And frankly, what's happening uh, is that this whole system is breaking down. The climate, Our climate system is literally breaking down, and it's happening way, way faster than anybody ever thought. I don't know how many times I've heard scientists say, that's happening 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years earlier than we thought it would, than our model said it went on and on and they go. Let me give you a few examples of this. In the Canadian high Arctic, um, and I wrote an article about this called Permafrost Collapses 70 Years Early. Uh, the scientists in the high Arctic, where it's frozen rock solid like the rock of Gibraltar, year-round, by the way, frozen solid like a rock for thousands of years, right? Okay, so they measure the thaw, what they call thaw depths. And the thaw depths now, where the permafrost is thawing as you go down underground, it's exceeded their expectations of what they thought would occur by the year 2090. Here we've got climate change, global warming rather, 80 years ahead of schedule in this case, 80 years ahead. And this is stuff that they even had, had to keep moving their camp on a very frequent basis every few months instead of every five, two, three, four, five years because of cascading permafrost. You know, there are houses sinking into the earth on permafrost grounds in Alaska, in Canada, in Russia. 25% of the northern hemisphere is permafrost. And it's cascading, and it's dying, and it's spewing all kinds of carbon into the atmosphere. As a matter of fact, there was a two-year flyover. Low, they did, uh, uh, scientists did this two-year flyover over Alaska, where the permafrost has been collapsing. And right now, Alaska is producing as much carbon emitting into the atmosphere in two years as one year of commercial uh, carbon emissions here in the United States by all the power plants combined. So now our own state of Alaska is in competition with our own commercial enterprises and power plants shooting uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's a fine how do you do, isn't it? Um, also... Uh, you've got Alaska's Denali National Park, which is a major national park. It has a 92-mile road that goes into it. That thing is slip-sliding, and it's squiggly because of cascading permafrost. The Yukon Territories in April of this year were 2C hotter than ever before and hotter than the past 10,000 years. Not only that, if you go to the Arctic sea ice loss, and this is one of the great tragedies of our era, and it's going to have huge ramifications throughout the entire northern hemisphere. Listen to this. How much loss of ice has there been in the Arctic? In 1976 to 87, it was 15%. The 90s, 43%. Today, 75%. Uh-oh. 15%, 43%, 75%. What's that sound like? Exponential all over again, right? That's even happening on the loss of ice. Um, now, 
there was a major study done of ancient ice cores by the British Antarctic Survey and also University of Cambridge. And they made a shocking discovery of what happened in the past. And this has a lot to do with the loss of Arctic ice. By the way, the multi-year ice, the real thick stuff, is pretty much all gone out of the Arctic now. Anyway, here's what they came up with. That when you get a major reduction of the sea ice, when they got one in the past in the Arctic, it causes temperature amplification of Greenland. And it increased the temperatures in Greenland by 16 centigrade or 2730 Fahrenheit in less than 10 years. If that were to happen again in 10 years, we might as well roll up the sidewalks today. If somebody wants to read about this, I'm going to give you what to Google and they can go online and read about it. They can read the scientific report. And they, they, all they have to do is Google this. Impact of abrupt sea ice loss on Greenland water isotopes during the last glacial period. The impact of that is should it happen the way it happened then before. And keep in mind, <laughs> everything's happening exponentially now. You'd have a period of havoc and panic around the world you wouldn't believe. So... Let me give you some more turbocharged climate stuff. Another article that I wrote, um, the, I got out of National Geographic. Uh, there's some, some Arctic grounds that used to freeze all the time are no longer freezing, even in the wintertime. And they found instances where normally it'd be 30, 40 below, you were getting thawing permafrost. And it's, it, it, they said it's beginning decades sooner than they ever, they ever expected. And their question that they asked was, could this accelerate climate change? Well, yes, it could accelerate climate change a lot because what happens is you thaw out the permafrost and when it, all of a sudden get all of these, these uh, greenhouse gas emissions shooting up into the atmosphere competing with human people, humans. A couple, I just want to ask a quick follow up on that one too, because a couple of other stories that I've come across in the last few months that I think tie into that. One being that the, um, the the melt of this permafrost is also creating major infrastructure problems because so much of the Arctic is dependent upon uh, year-round ice roads. That these that these uh, that the ice is really a key infrastructure aspect uh, in the northern in the northern parts and inside of the Arctic Circle. And as these things melt, communities are quite literally being cut off uh, from truck traffic, commercial traffic, and things like that. You're absolutely right. In fact, there was a really interesting uh, photo that went viral about a month ago, maybe two months ago, of uh, sledge dogs pulling a Danish meteorologist to his site in Greenland, which is normally just pure ice all the time. And they were in water up to their waist. And that went viral. And I, I received an email from um, Dr. Peter Wadhams of uh, Professor Emeritus um, of Cambridge, who's the leading expert on Arctic ice. And he said he had been to that same spot because I wrote about it and he saw it in my article. And he said he had been to that exact same spot. He knew those guys. He said that was always just solid as rock ice. And here it is, sledge dogs at the time of the year when it's always frozen, water up to their waist. Uh, let me give you a preview of runaway global warming because we actually have one that happened right here on Earth. We already know what runaway global warming will look like. It happened in Australia oh, just a few months ago at the end of the year 2018. Uh, and I have a very good friend here in L.A. who was, was there at the time who is Australian. 
and uh, certainly can verify <laughs> what I'm talking about here. Here's what happened. Australia had all-time sustaining record temperatures like they've never, ever, ever had before, setting records one fell after another, day by day. It just hung in there. One of these things where, you know, these weather patterns come and they just park and stay because of fouling up our entire uh, system. Um, here's what happened. You had destruction of biblical proportions. You had melted, buckled highways. Thousands of bats literally dropped dead in city streets. Tens of thousands of dead fish washed ashore. Fruit on fruit trees cooked from the inside out. There's your preview. If you want a preview of runaway global warming, that's what it could look like. And I just want to I want to throw one other out there and not to make this too dystopian to use your Mad Max reference here. But one of the other ones that is quite terrifying is when you read these stories about uh, the permafrost melt unlocking viruses that have been frozen and buried away for tens of thousands of years. I mean, it doesn't take a science fiction imagination to imagine what might happen from that. No, <laughs> Thank you very much, Eric. You're absolutely right. And that's another one of these uh, um, issues I should add to my turbocharged climate change uh, list because that's a serious one. It really is. Um, but let me talk for a minute now about – I've got a couple more I want to give you and then we'll just kind of generalize about some other things. But uh, one of my favorite scientists out there is a guy named Eric Rigneau. He's French, but he's with NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. He's the world expert on Antarctica. And um, – he gave a lecture to the National Academies of Sciences in Washington, D.C. recently, and it was about sea level rise. And in fact, he also had written an article, if people want to Google this, they could read it. It's called Four Decades of Antarctic Ice Sheet Mass Balance from 17, uh, 1979 to 2017. And here's what's interesting. What he did is he gave the total mass loss in gigatons of ice in Antarctica that's occurring now. And here's what the numbers are. This is every 10 years, every decade. 1989 to 2000, 50 gigatons. 1999 to 2009, 166 gigatons. 2009 to 2017, 252 gigatons. Sound familiar? with what we've been talking about? Is this kind of another one of these exponential type of things? We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. And you also don't want to hear that East Antarctica is starting to rumble and tumble because they've been telling us for years how solid East Antarctica was. Uh-uh. You've got a glacier there called the Totten Glacier that is starting to flow like you wouldn't believe in the East Antarctica. And in West Antarctica, uh, there's a region around the Amundsen Sea where they are, the British uh, Antarctic Survey is following six major glaciers, one of which is the Pine Island Glacier, um, that are very dicey right now. And those six glaciers alone account for 10 feet of sea level rise. And they are uh, irreversibly starting to cascade. Now, what happens, what's so interesting about these ice sheets and the glaciers, you know, these big ice sheets, they, they, they fall off and we hear about them. They're so many tons, you can't believe it. And they're the size of New York City and all this kind of stuff. Well, those ice sheets are really ice over water. And um, 
they serve as a backstop to the glaciers. So if you remove the ice sheets, then the glaciers start to flow rapidly and real fast into the, into the water. And that's when you run into big problems. And that is exactly what's starting to happen. So I, if you recall at the start of this, I said I'm going to give you a couple of examples of where it's actually happening here in the United States, meaning the impact of even a minor sea level rise that we've had. If you were to go to the Outer Banks offshore of North Carolina, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, Eric. But uh, yeah, we, we, we definitely have, but I think it's important for people to get this uh, example. Yeah, it's a 200-mile string of, of, of islands. There are 57,000 people that live there. There's an iconic scenic highway called Highway 12 that connects them. It's washing out all the time because of sea level rise. People are now moving houses inland because of sea level rise. There are some spots in this chain where the islands are down to 25% of their original width because of sea level rise. So um, it, it, what's happening is even with only four, five, six inches over the last hundred years, it's already starting to impact us. In fact, America's got its first ever eco-migrants, and these are out of the Isle de Jean Charles in Louisiana. HUD spent $50 million to move an entire community. It was a small community, but a lot of people, a lot of families, to higher grounds because of sea level rise. So um, <laughs> we're in a really strange place right now on the planet, I think. And uh, we're actually an experiment, if you will. Uh, we really are. We're in experimental territory here. And... A lot of things that are happening. We get a lot of, 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 of uh, uh, ricochet effect from these uh, global warming things. For example, the eco-migrants out of the Central America. I mentioned this in this article I wrote about the uh, pounding heat in Greenland at the very end of it. Um, uh, there was an article written, and they said that uh, the people in the Honduras and the rural farmers in the Honduras and Guatemala, those farmers are living on the life of hunger because of drought. And they have to make a choice. They have to either pray for rain or migrate. Guess what they're doing? Hello, Donald Trump. They're migrating, aren't they? And why are they migrating? Because they don't, they have a drought and they can't eat. That's why they're migrating. Let's get serious about this and think about what's really going on. This isn't that, <laughs> isn't that so... This is happening, Eric, along the whole Mediterranean uh, east coast and the northern coast of Africa that's drying out faster than anywhere else on the planet. And, 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 and then now there's also a really good theory out there now that's come out that this caused the entire shakeup in Syria because you had a five-year drought uh, in the most fertile valley where Western civilization started, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley a huge drought for five or six years and all the herders and farmers, one and a half million of them abandoned their land. And what they do, they went into the cities. This caused major social disruption. And that probably helped bleed into this war impact that they've got in Syria. A lot of people think that's true. 
And so, and we and just as to put in a couple of other examples that people might not have heard of, because the Syria one is somewhat uh, controversial and has been discussed at times. But the United Nations recently, I think last year, released a report saying that I think one one of the two most um, insecure regions in the world now they consider to be the Lake Chad Basin. That's Niger- Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, uh, Chad, that region there, and Lake Chad, uh, which has so much conflict and of course is also rich in uh, energy resources is also considered ground zero for climate change induced uh, genocide because that's really what they're beginning to see there. A lot of the violence around Boko Haram in the northern part of Nigeria and around Lake Chad is also being attributed to the loss of fisheries, to the loss of uh, climate change related uh, impacts. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you can go to the um, um, uh, the Andes Mountains in South America, and the World Bank uh, came out with an analysis a couple of years ago that 100 million people are at risk in the Andes because the uh, glaciers in the Andes serve as their water tower. And so that water tower does what? It provides drinking water, provides irrig- irrigation for the crops, and also uh, hydro. And uh, if you were to fly over the Andes, uh, 30 years ago, and I've seen photographs of this, it was just white. Uh, if you do it today, they're pretty much barren. And so there you've got the water towers for 100 million people are being lost. Not only and, that, and, and similarly in the Himalayas, which accounts for a lot more people in the Indian subcontinent. Well, yeah, you look at the Lankang River, which is called the Danube of the East. Uh, it's one of the major waterways in China. And uh, there's a... a uh, a hydrologist in China, Heng Neng or something like that, I can't think of his name, but he um, has followed the headwaters, the glacial headwaters of the Lankang River for his whole lifetime. And he came out with a report a few years ago, in fact, he said that we've lost 70% of the headwaters for the Lankang River. Well, the Lankang River is a major commercial waterway and it extends 3,500 miles. It goes through the Mekong Delta on its way up, you know, to the seas down below. And it, that's a major waterway for how many people? I don't know, hundreds of millions. I mean, you know, our water towers are at risk in the world. These natural water towers, glacial water towers we've got. So anyway, um, the last thing we need right now is a bunch of yahoos running around denying that climate change is real because it couldn't be any more real than it is. And uh, promoting these goofy um, rollbacks on science, in fact, attacking science, not only Bolsonaro in Brazil who's doing that, uh, and he's become a real serious threat to uh, the Amazon. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the major chiefs in the Amazon of all those tribes who was trying to fight back with Bolsonaro's opened up again, was just murdered not too long ago. Uh, and then you've got Trump denying science, denying science. Uh, listen, um, some this has got to come to a head. You can't have that. Is it possible then the question in all of this becomes – what do you do? What do you do? I mean, um, you know, we all have to live our lives and make the best we can out of things. But I think that people's awareness has to be peaked quite a bit. And they've got to really start talking about this. And people have to get active. Now, it's starting to happen. The Extinction Rebellion started in the UK. 
I know all about the Extinction Rebellion, and a really smart group of people started it, and they're taking drastic action. They lay down in the streets. They close, sit down in front of Parliament and all these governmental offices and things, and they'll just stay planted until they take action. Well, guess what? You have 90 cities now in the UK that have gone to zero tolerance, and they're going to go to zero fossil fuels as a result of the Extinction Rebellion. That rebellion is coming to the United States. It's already there, some cells already forming. Um, but those are the kind of things you got to take drastic action now. You've really got to put yourself out there, and people need to put themselves out there and get serious about this and fight back. And let's get rid of these, the you know, knuckleheads. <laughs> they're, they're really messing things up. Is it possible to have a worldwide World War II type of martial effort if the whole world came together and bring this back somehow together? Probably yes. But to do that, you'd actually have to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Now, um, I know one of the people who's working on that is uh, Dr. Peter Wadhams, who I know personally, he's at Scripps Oceanography in San Diego right now on a working vacation for a month, and I'm going to be going down there to see him in about a week. Um, and he's working on projects, these um, geoengineering projects, to remove carbon dioxide. He told me the only way we're the only salvation we got to remove the CO2 from the atmosphere. Period. The technology is there, by the way, Eric. It can be done, but here's the problem: it's a massive undertaking. You need to put out as much infrastructure to remove the CO2 from the atmosphere as put it in in the first place. In other words, whatever the infrastructure for the fossil fuel industry is, we got to duplicate that to take it back out. That's a massive, very expensive effort. And there are too many, the fossil fuel industry is too embedded to even allow that to happen. So it's um, it's a mess right now, to be honest. Let's be honest about it. We've got a real dangerous situation. It's very dicey going forward. In the time we have remaining, um, I just want to ask you, I mean, I know I kind of touch on this every time we talk, Robert, but it's uh, it's something that's important to me, and I think hopefully to a lot of people who are listening, and that is how we are to think about all of these things in our daily lives, especially those of us who have children or grandchildren that we take care of, that we look at on a daily basis, because that to me is where climate change and uh, a vision of what a climate change future might look like really takes on uh, new layers of meaning. So I guess my first question on that front is about what we're witnessing and what we've been talking about here. And specifically what I mean is how do we reconcile in our own minds and in our everyday lives, the fact that we've accepted that climate change is real, that climate change is transformative and will impact all of humanity. But now we are faced with the fact that everything that we have finally come to accept about climate change is happening much more quickly, much more rapidly than we ever expected. And that this is not simply an issue of our children and our grandchildren, but maybe an issue of the next five to 10 years. How are we, how do you um, recognize recommend that people deal with that on a psychological level? That's a very tough question, isn't it? Um, well, I think, you know, I think that you've got to just address it head on and read about it, study it, talk to people about it. The, the knowledge is, is one of our most valuable resources. And when you have a lot of knowledge, you can then make things happen. And the suppression of knowledge 
that the Trump administration is putting out there by uh, undercutting scientists. We have scientists leaving our country going to France, you know, because France said, come on over here, we'll take you. Um, I mean, you know, we could talk for an hour about how much the Trump administration, our own government, has undercut the, I wrote an article, is the EPA harmful to your health? Uh, about a year ago. And people should read that. You know what? It is harmful to your health now. Why? Because of the destruction that this administration has done to the one agency that's supposed to protect our environment. It's unbelievable. It's almost hard to explain. People need to know these things. They need to talk about them. They need to tell everybody. Get fighting mad about it. Don't let it get you down. Get out there and make a difference. Uh, I've already attended, my wife and I, Jane and I, have already been going to these meetings uh, with different political people around this area where we're going out and registering people to vote. And I'm not, I, I think that the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans, but we've got to get Trump out. Got to get all those goons he's got in his administration out. They're going to take us down, down the river so fast. It's unbelievable what's happening. So get political, talk about it, read about it, and face it head on. And don't be afraid to talk to your, everyone you know about it. And do whatever you can to figure it out. You just got to figure out how to do things. I write about it. I study it in depth. I've done this for over a decade now. And um, one of the advantages of talking to me is that most scientists, I know scientists who only study pteropods, for example, these little free-swimming snails that are at the bottom of the food chain in the ocean. There are scientists like Dr. Wadhams who just studies ice in the Arctic. I look at it all. So that's one of the advantages you've got in talking to me is I look at all the work they all do. And when I see it, I just wake up in the middle of the night and stare at the ceiling and think, I can't believe this is all happening. And But people really aren't aware of it because I live in L.A. and every day is kind of beautiful here. But yet, I know it's coming. It's encroaching. It's coming in on us. And uh, this whole thing now about uh, an exponential sea level rise is really dicey and really spooky. And so one of the things that Englander is doing is he is actually preaching to coastal communities around the world, you better get your act together and start putting up some seawalls because it's coming. We're getting it. We just don't know how much and how soon. We know we're going to get it. You better put up the seawalls. So those are the kind of things you have to do. And the, the last thing I just want to get your comment on, um, and this is the one that also keeps me up at night with regard to climate change, and that is that what climate change and, and um, uh, you know, social and, and political issues that stem from climate change will do to the very nature of our society. So when we think about how the United States government under this current regime has responded to, you know, thousands of people coming from Central America. Now, if you multiply that by 10,000 times, as we see millions upon millions of refugees from climate related catastrophes streaming into the United States and in other countries in the global north, how that is going to rock our political systems. You think build the wall and these MAGA fascists is bad now, just you wait until we're in that scenario. So the final question to you is how do we how do we help people to connect issues of climate change with other political issues for just as one example, the 
the surveillance and police state that exists in the United States with all of the cameras and the facial recognition and the artificial intelligence and all of the other things that are out there to basically create a police state, how do we help people understand that that is there and just waiting for a climate catastrophe to turn it all on? <laughs> well, they should all go read 1984. Um, that would help because we're there. Don't you agree with that? Yeah, and 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 but 1984 almost at this point seems cliched because it seems not <laughs> realistic because we're living in something much worse. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. Uh, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. The other thing, Eric, by the way, um, that I want to just mention very quickly is we're living in an era of, of high capitalism and it's rampant capitalism and it's destroying our whole um, environment, the, the ecology of the whole planet. And uh, we've got to get off that. That's one we've got to get off of. You got to have eco-economics where uh, the um, ecosystems come before the capitalistic Wall Street system somehow. You got to get off that one because that's so destructive. It's just tearing the fabric of society apart in several ways. Not only does it totally disrespect nature and use it and throw it out, but also it's creating division. Uh, the capitalistic system now is like we've never had before. And the 1% is one of the finest little statements I've ever heard in my life. It kind of says it all. And, um, you know, I, I can't help but reflect on the French Revolution. I studied that pretty much in depth. And, boy, we, we, we're kind of similar to that in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, like a lightning bolt, the people were in the streets and they were taking down the armies. And... Then the armies joined the people, and before you knew it, uh, Louis XVI had his head cut off. So you don't know. I mean, people, funny things happen in this. this, this. All right, final final takeaway for everyone. Robert Hunsiker suggests get the guillotines, start the, let the blood flow. That is Robert Hunsiker's final message to everyone. You got it. Here. <laughs> All right. Okay. Robert, thank you again for coming on the show. Listeners, please do follow Robert Hunziker's work on Counterpunch. I really do feel that Robert is the best journalist working in the field of environmental journalism and climate change specifically. Follow all his work on Counterpunch. Follow him on social media. Robert, thanks for coming on the show again. Hey, thanks, Eric. Great to talk to you. We'll do it again. Listeners, thank you as always. We will chat again real soon. <laughs>